0: On this show of St. Louis in Tune, we have Nene Harris and Esley Hamilton in to talk about the 150th anniversary of the founding of public kindergarten in the United States. If we have time, we'll do a word of the day and have some humor. Well, greetings listeners in Listenerland. welcome to st louis in tune with arnold stricker and mark langston where we size up current and historic events involving people places and things in areas such as the arts crime education employment faith finance food government health history housing humor justice and sports we originate from and connect the gateway city to what is going on regionally nationally and internationally mark langston is on assignment today our return to civility goes exactly with what our guests are doing spend an afternoon at a museum whether it's history or science or art dive deep into something that's completely apart from your job or your typical day it really will make your day it's not the clint eastwood phrase, but it will make your day in a different way. So spend an afternoon at a museum. We have many museums in the metropolitan St. Louis area, and one of those museums is down in the Carondelet area. It is the home of the Carondelet Historical Society, and Nene Harris, who's an author and historian, she has done 15 books, researched, and written them about immigrants in St. Louis neighborhoods, churches, how the wars played an impact in the St. Louis area, and Esley Hamilton, many of you know him. He retired in 2015 after 38 years of being the preservation historian for the St. Louis County Parks and Recreation, and we'll get into more of his his old livelihood, but he (laughs) continues on after retirement. Welcome, Nene and Esley, to St. Louis in Tune.
1: Thank you for inviting us.
0: Now, the 150th anniversary of kindergarten. We're going to talk about Susan Blow, because many people know her. Many people don't know her. And we're also going to talk about the place where The kindergarten actually took place, which was De Pere School, which now houses the Carondelet Historical Society. And kind of, Esley, let's start a little bit about your background and what interested you in architecture and preserving what we have in our community, which are great architecture.
1: I was interested in architecture from an early age, but I decided I would never be a successful architect. And so I got a degree in urban planning, and after seven years of working in urban renewal, which involved tearing down historic buildings, I finally realized this was the wrong approach, Mm. that we would do much better with it our urban atmosphere if we save those historic buildings. And so I went back and looked for a job in historic preservation. And fortunately, I was able to find one with St. Louis County Parks Department.
0: So that historic historic preservation, how do you go about preserving a historic building or what do you look for? What some buildings just yeah that that's historic but maybe it's not worth preserving.
1: Oh, it would have to be pretty bad before I would say it wasn't (laughs) worth preserving. But there has been a big change. When I first started, really, if the building was built after the Civil War, it was much less valuable than if it was built before the Civil War. But now we've gone way past the whole Victorian era, and really I spend in recent years, I've spent more time on buildings that were built after World War II because that was one of the great periods of St. Louis architecture. One of the difficulties in St. Louis is that so the, we've had some good people write about architecture locally, but it never has been written about very much on a national level. And because St. Louisans tended to hire their own local architects, other people from other cities haven't come here, and they're missing all the wonderful resources that we have.
0: Here. That's true. And I hear your favorite preservation project was the Julia Dent.
1: Oh yeah, Whitehaven. Whitehaven, uh, right? Yeah, Ulysses that's, S. That's Grant. That's still National your favorite Institute. one. I think it's the most important for the country because when you go there today, almost every license plate in the parking lot is from a different state, but one of the, my biggest tragedy was the loss of the Coral Court Motel, and we do have a facade from that in the Museum of Transportation still.
0: Okay, very cool, very cool. And Nini, a little bit about your background. Fifteen books, you've been on the show two or three times, and we've talked, and I appreciate the friendship that we've developed, and you have a new book that's coming out to press here, but you're... What interests you to write a book on any of these topics? Is it just like that needs to be preserved or that history needs to be remembered or what is the motivation behind that?
2: Our city is incredible and it speaks to you. It speaks to you from the streets, from the buildings, the streetscapes, it's phenomenal. And my efforts in writing and doing programs about different aspects of St. Louis come from being a preservationist, an ultimate desire that Esli and I share to, to bring attention to these places so they're saved. Number one is bringing attention to them. They tell us so much history just looking at them, and when we alter them or erase them, we're losing who we are. And this is a very special place, and that's, it drives me. It becomes more, it's not a job, it's not a profession, it is a passion. And that's it.
0: I get that. I get that. We do have so much to remember here. There's a lot of history here, and a lot of it deals with buildings.
2: And it's layered. Mm -hmm. We go through so many layers of history of different waves of immigrants, different national trends that all involved St. Louis, and this is a place where you can learn a whole lot of different eras of history very quickly. You go out west, you can go to a fabulous western town, and it'll be fascinating about when it was the hub or the end of the whatever trail and the cattlemen were coming in, and then the history stops. With us, it just keeps going and changing, and this is just a remarkable place. If you're interested in American history and to understand American history, you have to understand European history. It is just a fabulous place to study.
0: Now, both of you are going to be speaking at the Carondelet Historical Society on September the 8th, mm-hmm. and that program is free and open to the public, folks. It is going to be on the architecture of the DePere School and the, and also on the 150th anniversary of kindergarten. And Susan Blow, it's also going to be repeated on Sunday, September 10th, both days at one thirty p.m., 1.30 p.m. So let's get into that a little bit. Esley, you're going to be talking about the building and the architect of that one. Why is he so special, and what's so special about the building?
1: His name is known, if it's known at all, because of the building on Cleeds Landing that was restored quite a few years ago, now 40-some years ago. And they de- it had been Peeper Tobacco Company, and they decided to name it Raider Place after the architect and they called him Frederick Rader. It, it turns out that his wife called him William, and most of the 19th century records refer to him as William F. Rader. He, this has confused people's understanding of what he actually <laughs> built. But <laughs> but we have gotten it worked out, and he was one of the leading architects from the time he arrived here in 1868. He was originally from, from Germany and trained in Germany, but he had been working on the East Coast since the 1850s. And so he was well trained and he got some big jobs at the beginning. He did, um, I would say, almost a dozen public schools in the early 1870s. And he even designed the big building of Washington University, which really? was then on Washington Avenue between 17th and 18th Street. It was about four times bigger than the building they had been using since 1853 and and he did several other large buildings and including industries in his later work it was mostly factories he was building but he did houses that some of which have been have survived in the Lafayette Square and Fox Park areas and two churches are still standing also
0: Wow, so his official name is
1: William F. Raider. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just want to be sure. Yeah. And those schools, describe those schools a little bit because people think of a school nowadays, these were completely different.
1: They were and it's first of all they were smaller. The city was quite large for in terms of acreage in relation to the population and but there we had a very well funded school district from the 1850s on which has always been one of st louis's great prides and joys up until recently i would say and so they decided in the 1870s that they had just annexed Carondelet in 1870 hmm. it was an independent town up until then, that they needed to get some schools there, so they built two right away, and and they built – the other schools that he built were in the growing areas on the perimeter of the town, as it was in 1870, and they were – tended to have not so many classrooms, may, maybe four or eight, but – they were very large the rooms were extremely large and the ceilings were very high and so that's one of the big surprises of walking into the De school when you look at the furniture these little tiny chairs that were for kindergartners in relation to the scale of the room it's quite surprising <laughs> that they were building on such a, a scale and of course, the how the school was doubled in size later in the 19th century, and our historical society has built two little bump outs, also including our library and our elevator, which it never
0: had. And this is a two or three story building. Two, just two stories. Two stories.
1: But it's high. You always go up steps. And when William B. Idner started designing schools, he even raised the level of the ground in the front of the building. So that would require you to go up steps to get into the building because they wanted those schools to dominate the scene.
0: Now, do you think that he knew or was familiar with or was friends with James Eads? Because Eads was doing some, he was working down at the shipyard down there doing the, what do I wanna say? You know what I'm talking about? The ironclads. Oh, yeah, iron he was doing clads. the ironclads. It would have been
1: during the Civil War. Right. He would have been working on the bridge at the time this was built. Okay. Because remember, it started construction in 68, just when... He uh, came over? When Yeah, when Rader got here, and it was dedicated in 1874. Okay. He would have known about it, but I don't know if he was related. We have spectacular iron staircases in the school building, but... I think they might have been installed with the it addition. Yeah.
0: So it's a wood structure or st- or oh, brick stone. Uh,
1: brick, all masonry. Okay. And of course they were very concerned about fire, even at that time. But in style, it was conservative. It was Italian, Italianate. That is, it, it was the proportions were a little bit like Italian villas or palazzos, and it had a bracketed cornice like the Italianate. Row houses in, in, in Lafayette, Lafayette Square. Square.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: We recently restored the the brackets, and we allowed people to to contribute them, and so we had over seventy people make contributions of one bracket each. Oh
0: wow, that's <laughs> cool. and I've seen models, not models of that school, but similar styles of that school yeah, building right. around mm-hmm. there's another one farther south that actually my mom went to school there at a k-8 school and there's one over off of Vandeventer, a very similar one off of hampton very similar there
2: is the one at the brewery the old lion school really yes um, part of the brewery complex okay currently, and that's one of the few remaining of raiders oh my gosh buildings. yeah
1: that's wow. the oldest school surviving, public school surviving in St. Louis, the one on Pestalozzi Street. Okay. And then the one that you mentioned that's down at the south end of at the Corundalet School, mm. is three stories. So it's okay. more palatial looking than ours, and, and then ours was third.
0: Okay. So Susan Blow comes onto the scene, but before we we get to Nene, this is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. We're talking to Nene Harris and Esley Hamilton about an upcoming program that is going to be celebrating the 150th anniversary of kindergarten and that will take place at the Carondelet Historical Society on Saturday September 9th and S- Sunday September 10th at 1 p.m. each day. So Nini, Susan Blow, give folks a little understanding of her because some people obviously will know her and some people will not.
2: Well, she had interesting grandparents to start Yes with. she did. Her one grandfather had been a slave owner, and owned the slave Dred Scott. Right. The next generation of her family. Freedom. Bought uh, it. Worked to get him free through the legal system, right. and they ultimately emancipated him because they could not get freedom established in the courts. So that was the Blow family on his mother's or her mother's side. Old Thornton Grimsley was her grandfather, and he lived with them for a long time. He was a saddle maker, and he did very well as a saddle maker. He ended up making the saddles for the U.S. Cavalry. Wow! And so out west, years later, they're using Thornton Grimsley saddles, and he became an alderman and was in charge of the commons, the committee of aldermen who decided what to do with the common lands, and he helped establish Lafayette Park. He was a real character, and Susan, growing up, used to, as his eyesight failed, read him the newspapers. So what an education that would have been for her. She was born in 1843 in St. Louis, and they moved to their country home in Carondelet after the fire of 1849 burned down their city house. Mm. And she was the oldest of nine children and traveled with the family. Her father, who had been a very successful businessman, then became minister to Venezuela, and then he served in the U.S. Congress he was appointed director or ambassador to brazil and the whole family lived in brazil for a while it that was a kind of cure this family has affected st louis to today in so many ways when her family came back from brazil they brought their orchids and they gave the orchids to henry shaw Wow. And that was the core of the orchid collection at Missouri Botanical wow. Garden. But then the family goes to Europe because her sister managed to marry a Russian count of the same last name as the vodka, Smirnov. And the whole family goes traveling in Europe. And Susan, who appears to have lost the love of her life, she was and seemed... She carried on a correspondence with a young Union soldier she had met at a dance at Jefferson Barracks. And her father disapproved of the relationship, but then the young man died of his injuries, or Mm -hmm. something to do with serving in the Union Army, whether it was disease or wounds, I can't tell you. But she was a single woman looking for a mission, it appears. And when they were traveling in Europe, she saw kindergarten as Frederick Frabel had started it in Germany. And she took copious notes and she buys things having to do with kindergarten like the gifts They used in the kindergarten to help children learn. And kindergarten, what does the word mean? But children's garden. And she brings the concepts back to St. Louis. She was a very smart woman and active with the Philosophical Society locally, though she was not officially allowed to join because they didn't allow females. And (laughs) she met William Torrey Harris, who was a brilliant educator, and then superintendent of the young St. Louis public school system. The system actually starts in 1838. Okay. Okay. The city is growing in population by leaps and bounds, and they keep building more and more schools, trying to accommodate all these immigrants and uh, the children of immigrants. And they're looking for ways to reach these children Brought up about building the schools on the fringes of development. And part of that was the city was growing so quickly that the early schools were almost all located in downtown. They were, because that's where St. Louis was right. leading up to the Civil War, it was mostly downtown. Anyway, she proposes this idea of she'll start a kindergarten and they can train teachers to spread the kindergarten movement here. And she proposes it to her associate in the Philosophical Society, William Torrey Harris, and he supports it. The school, De School, now Carondelet Historical Society, was opening in the fall of 1873, and one of the four classrooms was dedicated to this experimental kindergarten. And I've got to say, the surprise for me in doing this research, I've been doing more research for this sure. celebration, and there was one big surprise. I haven't told you about it all, Esley. I'm going to
0: do a drum roll here.
2: <laughs> okay, so today we see all this politics around public education and different kinds of education. I thought this was recent. Public education has always been political. Absolutely. Very, yes, political. There was major opposition to the very concept of kindergarten.
0: And that was even after she had started, too.
2: Right. After that first one leading up to it, there was all sorts of opposition. Really, okay. And one of the undercurrents I have found was, number one, it was German. There were, who won in the Civil War in St. Louis? Oh. Germans won. It, some saw it as the further, and I'm gonna see if I can say this word, Germanization. Of public education to have kindergarten, and it, it, I, that was one complaint because it was right out of Germany. The other thing, there were uh, the expense, but they needed this. Children went to work at age ten or eleven in working class families. Ten or eleven meant they got maybe three years of school. They couldn't. William Torrey Harris and the other people dedicated to public education could not figure out how to add more years onto children's school life because they had to help support their families. So, kindergarten enabled them to start school earlier and get another year in. It also introduced children to English. My own grandmother, born in 1883, she learned English in St. Louis Public School kindergarten. Can you imagine all these kids going to first grade to learn to read and write and do math in what was then a foreign language to them? 72% of the school children entering St. Louis Public Schools were entering from families that spoke other languages at home.
0: Some things have not changed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing is new. Yeah. <laughs> That's that was the, fa- but they kept trying to do better. That's what we can take inspiration from. They constantly experimented with how can we reach as many children as we can, and improve their quality of life through education and make a stronger nation too through education.
0: We want to find out exactly what are some of the details of that kindergarten and i'll throw a little hints out there it involves blocks and yarn so (laughs) we'll we'll tease the audience with that a little bit but we're going to come back after our break this is arnold strickle with mark langston of st louis in tune we're talking to harris and esley hamilton about the 150th anniversary of kindergarten we'll be right back This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott. But we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to DredScottLives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage
3: Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis In Tune. At St. Louis In Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues, and events that involve people, places, and things. We cover a wide range of topics, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports, and that's just to name a few. While St. Louis Intune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect to what's going on nationally as well. If you missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis Intune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There you'll find the show notes and everything that was mentioned in that episode and all the other great episodes as well. And if you've got an area that you'd like us to examine deeper, well, just let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in Tune. It's heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the US, and of course, right here in St. Louis. Our website again is stlintune.com. Visit us today, that's stlintune.com. Welcome back
0: to St. Louis In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We are talking about the 150th anniversary of kindergarten. I should say public kindergarten in the United States because some people... They want to make sure that it's exactly like that because it wasn't the first kindergarten in the world. It was the first public kindergarten in the United States. And in to talk to us about that, Nene Harris and Esley Hamilton. And before we went to the break, we were teased the audience about what were the aspects or I should say like the details of what that kindergarten classroom looks like. Because we all, I'm sure we all went to kindergarten and most people who are listening went to kindergarten And by the way, kindergarten in the state of Missouri is not a requirement. You just have to go to school by age seven at the time. I, it's been a while since I've looked at that, but most people, hey, kindergarten's free. It's childcare from parents. They love that. I get these kids out of the house. That wasn't the case. And Nini, as you were describing, it was a language development, not only developing language, but learning English. And then there were some other skills about how children learn through play and gardening and using yarn and using blocks. And take it away, Nini.
2: The kindergarten was designed to introduce children as young as possible to great literature, to music, to calisthenics. They had toys or activities that taught them dexterity, rhythm, and pattern. Some of these things were like paper weaving and we still we have many of the projects of early kindergartners that we can show people oh wow the paper weaving that they learned so much in in about design and how things fit together and my sister she was a high school art teacher for years i brought her to the kindergarten one saturday and showed her everything the kindergartners had done a hundred and whatever years ago and she went back to her classroom on Monday with her seniors and tried to get them to do paper weaving. And they're struggling. Oh, Miss Harris, this is so difficult. This is so terrible to have to do. And of course she got to respond a hundred years ago. Kindergartners could do that.
0: So paper weaving <laughs> is it kind of weaving paper in and out?
2: Yes, yeah. like that. Like okay. a little rug. Okay. They would make little rug designs out of paper. They had building blocks, and they would. They had to at the end of the day get all their little wooden building blocks back in the wooden box, and sometimes that was the hardest thing to do during the day. But Susan Blow in 1876 had an exhibit of St. Louis kindergarten at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhib- Exhibition, Okay, and. It was a big hit spreading the kindergarten movement. Among the people who visited were Frank Lloyd Wright's mother. Hmm. She went home and started a kindergarten for her own children. And Frank Lloyd Wright later said that that's where he started to learn shape and form was with the wooden building blocks from the kindergarten. That's
0: very interesting
2: it taught children so much and brought them so much joy and before that classrooms were not friendly places they had a teacher up on a platform in the front who taught monitors how, or the oldest students how a project and then they went down these long rows that generally had a hundred students in the classroom and they'd go down the long rows and the monitors would teach the other students. And it was a severe factory-like system. And then they went to kindergarten and it was a joy. Kids wanted to go back. Even though there had been so much apprehension about it, they found kids enjoyed it.
0: Interesting. Esli, what were you gonna say? The other thing about the
1: working with blocks and paper-weaving is that it developed motor skills and the hand dexterity. And it's possible that those high school kids had never learned to use their hands in that way.
2: I bet you're right, Esli. And you're not gonna use it at a computer. You're not (laughs) gonna learn those skills. And those
0: blocks, they had to go back into a block box, correct? So, So we're talking about spatial awareness, absolutely think, I can understand why Frank Lloyd Wright was he really had a you have to have that kind of thing and develop that and work that now yeah. that classroom Esley, I, I've been an educator for a long time and people they've been to kindergarten so they know what it's like there's usually tables and chairs and a lot of color and things what was this room like what does it look like down at the Historical Society in Carondelet
1: as I mentioned it's huge they there were blackboards on both of the long walls, and the teacher kept things on the board at all times. They weren't just used for specific projects, but also to increase the students' visual awareness. And the chairs were small, scaled to the chill mm-hmm. That was pretty unusual, and the tables were also low, and they're quite large they're massive yeah even an adult can't really reach the whole way across them and and that gave the kids plenty of space to spread out they didn't have the issue of being messy all the time right because they had this huge workspace
0: now how big of a room we're we talking about because people will they'll remember how big their kindergarten room is or they can visualize this with how big maybe their living room is normally we're talking how many square feet roughly
1: oh i don't know but a thousand in in in, would you say it's (laughs) 25 feet by 30 maybe that sounds okay so 750 square feet yeah that's a good size a lot of houses in st louis are only 25 feet across yeah Yeah. okay
0: okay and those the yarn they would use different color yarns, to teach obviously primary colors, secondary colors, but what would they do with the yarn balls? What was the function of those? Well,
2: that was to learn color. Okay, okay. That that the yarn was on those balls. The other thing they did with yarn was they were given little pieces of cardboard that had holes punched in them and Hmm. they would pull the yarn through the different holes and across the surface of the cardboard and make designs out of the yarn on the cardboard and they'd make Mm -hmm. lovely snowflake-like designs and i'm sure they redid and undid it was just a world opening up that they could make designs this way primary colors learning colors was a big thing again with language and the singing the little play party songs sang they also did a lot of paper folding and they would fold they learned how to fold paper hats that they would wear for like George Washington's birthday they could make tricorners and all these children from all over the world were learning american culture a shared culture through this kindergarten.
0: Now I read in some things that Froebel liked to have them tend a real garden outside to tend a plant. Mm-hmm. They were responsible for a plant. Was that part of Susan Blow's philosophy also? And is that like a garden plot outside of the De Pere school there?
2: <laughs> it's now parking. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But there was a plank wall around the school and there was a garden. Okay. And a gentleman, Mr. Dumphy, mm-hmm. our neighbor, Mr. Dumphy, you oh. had met him. Mm-hmm. He attended kindergarten at DePere School in 1918, and he came over to the school one day and he sang the gardening song and gardening dance they would do in the garden about watering the plants. Of course, we wrote down all the words intending tending to the wow. plants. And then they'd sing about their work. I um, remembered it. It, it. He was 95 years old when he's singing this song and telling us how great kindergarten was. What a wonderful experience. Now, that tells you something right there that 95-year-olds would talk about the joy of kindergarten.
0: Yeah. They weren't talking about the rest of schooling.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. School was not a joy, but kindergarten was designed to be a joyful place.
0: Now, let me ask you this. How many kids are we talking about in the first classrooms?
2: Thus far found one primary source that confirms that Susan had, had to do some recruiting to get people to come into the classroom on the first day. There had been so much negative said about what would happen in kindergarten with very young children. And the first day they get 20 students, within a few weeks they have 42 students, and that was the max.
0: In one class? In
2: one class. Okay. But see, the teachers had assistants, and she had a full-time teacher there and assistants who were being trained on kindergart- how to run a kindergarten because she did not envision a kindergarten. She envisioned a system. And within few a few years, they had a system across the city schools and it was celebrated by, in three years, the experiment of kindergarten in that one classroom was being talked about all over and bragged about in literature about st louis they were saying and we have this kindergarten going on the second year they opened up a kindergarten with teachers she had trained at De pair a kindergarten in a very poor immigrant area and then in an up and rising more comfortable middle class area Hmm. they both proved great successes in a few years, there are 1,200 children in kindergartens around the city, and a few years after that, it's a citywide system.
0: And she was training other people who were coming from other cities also while they are observing they and doing to all this? They other cities. Okay. The
2: people who were trained in this system in St. Louis started kindergarten systems in other cities.
0: Wow.
1: Our pride in the kindergarten system can be seen in the buildings also, because when William B. Itner started designing schools for St. Louis in the late 1890s, he put the kindergarten right in the front of the building, in the center, as a ground floor extension out from the two or three-story building behind it, so that everybody would see that first.
0: And I remember I grew up and went to kindergarten in a William B. Itner building in University City, Mm -hmm. which you live in University City, Jackson Park, matter of fact. And the room was twice as large as a regular classroom, or one and a half times larger. And some had fireplaces in them, and there were just little alcoves, little bump outs. It was a again tall ceilings but it was a very inviting environment just the building itself not necessarily what the materials were or what the teacher was doing there but that was very good too
2: i've got to brag i (laughs) went to st louis public grade school and we had a phenomenal education by eighth grade we were supposed to be competent to take care of ourselves in the world right it taught self-reliance and but we left with that joy of learning and it it was just great and at our school this is the same as in Susan blows kindergarten in her kindergarten there were very poor children and children that came from well-to-do background. One of the things she bragged about after the first year was class distinctions were erased in kindergarten. Now, I know at my school, a few years before me, the children had graduated by the time I was aware. They had lived in the last of the hooverville down by the river they were still oh. living in a shack their parents had never gotten out of a shack that was built along the river during the great depression their parents had been raised in and they were raising their children there and those children were going to school with the children of bell Reed boulevard and when you were at school you did not know it right I went to several children who I found out in summertime, they were not allowed to wear shoes in summer because they had to save their shoes for the cold weather in the school year. But St. Louis Public had a marvelous success at treating everyone as just young people who were here to learn and help us from wherever to our greatest potential. It was a phenomenal experiment. They did many other things besides kindergartens that were first. And they were extraordinary in serving the African-American community immediately after the Civil War. As soon as education and this was the problem with the state of Missouri had outlawed education for right. African Americans. right As soon as the Civil War is over, they this system is opening up schools for African Americans. Think what a leap forward that was. It's, it was just a phenomenal story that we can model things after today, right. the successes they had. Whatever we're facing today, it's nothing compared with the, what the school system was facing in the 1870s.
0: Right. Now, Esley, what I'd like for you to do is, I'm going to prompt you here <laughs> so I can get you thinking, and Nini, also, I want you to do a 32nd or in what I call an elevator commercial of why people need to come to hear you guys talk about the 150th anniversary of kindergarten. And folks, while they're thinking about that, I'll let you know that's going to take place Saturday, September 9th, and Sunday, September 10th, both days at 1.30 p.m. And both Nene and Esley will speak about the architecture of the De Pere School, now the Carondelet Historical Society, and they'll also talk about the beginning of the kindergarten movement in St. Louis, which was actually founded by Susan Blow. And it's the first public kindergarten in the United States of America. Okay. Ashley. <laughs> You're
1: up. Since I live in University City, I have already a pretty good knowledge of how little people in other parts of the St. Louis area know about Carondelet, period. And if we need to remember that Carondelet was an independent city up until 1870, founded only three years after St. Louis. And so there's a very rich history down there. And we actually have more Really early buildings in Corundelet than we have left in the other parts of St. Louis hmm. now. And it still is a great place to live and work, and people should know that we have this resource there. And especially the, the historical society is the largest historical society in the region. Wow. Not just in the city of St. Louis. And The fact that it has, up until last year, was run without any paid staff whatsoever is really a remarkable achievement. It shows what community groups can accomplish just with volunteer efforts.
0: And that Historical Society and the DePere School is 6303, 6303, Michigan Avenue, 6303 Michigan Avenue, 63111. And if you want some more information, it's carondeleththistory.org. And I'm going to spell carondelet for you folks out there. Yeah. It's C-A-R-O-N-D-E-L-E-T. It should be carondelet. Hey, we do things different here in St. Louis. Gravois. Gravois. You yeah. know, we're not going to go down that road. NeNe, you're up now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you left me speechless Esley. the Susan Blow kindergarten classroom has been restored to exactly how it looked in 1873 we had photos of the classroom we had written descriptions that even had the heights of the tables and the benches and we have recreated what children experienced in that first kindergarten. And so that alone is worth coming to to see us, and it is all documented. We have documentation for everything. That's why you need to come join us, and we're going to do the program. Part of the program will actually be in the original kindergarten classroom. Oh, cool. You're going to sit yeah. around the classroom for part of the program.
0: Not, not at those small chairs and small tables.
2: We're bringing in big chairs. <laughs> bringing, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, Some people's knees might suffer. <laughs> <Yeah. otherwise.
0: laughs> no doubt. So I want to remind folks, September 8th and September – excuse me, September 9th and September 10th. That's a Saturday and Sunday at 1.30 p.m. at the Carondelet Historical Society. That's the Old DePere School. You'll see the 150th anniversary of kindergarten and a Susan Blow display, I would say, lecture discussion by Esley Hamilton and Nene Harris there. So a great program. Looking forward to that. I'm glad you guys decided to come in today, and thanks very much for talking to us. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I want to go out a little bit, want to give you our word of the day, folks. It's vagary, vagary, an unexpected and inexplicable change in a situation or in someone's behavior. An unexpected or inexplicable change. In a situation or someone's behavior. So you guys know we try to help educate the populace here, the listeners, and give them a word that they can utilize during the day. So maybe you you had a you went in to talk to your boss and you saw a how do I want to say this? Of your boss displayed a vagary understanding of where you were the day before at work. <laughs>
2: Do we have to figure out how to make that word apply oh, in it, something during our talks oh, on that those oh, days? Oh wow, that's a great thing.
0: How about if you do that right now?
2: Oh my. Wait now, vagary, would that be a noun or it's a it noun. is a noun, right. So we could I could say the opposition to the very concept of kindergarten was a vagary? it doesn't sound the, quite right
1: the people's understanding of the uh of the kindergarten concept was a vagary at best okay
2: i can thank you our okay. weather
0: recently has had a vagary transition
2: <laughs> you got it <laughs> This is the best oh you, you've got to the do the it the <laughs> with architecture <laughs>
0: I'm really putting people on the spot. Oh here. my
2: goodness! <laughs> uh, that's ha- yours is harder than mine.
0: Yeah, we
1: used to be very concerned about what style is a building, and I really don't care about that anymore. But the, but looking at a lot of buildings in St. Louis, the style of the building is a vagary. <laughs> that's true. Okay,
0: you got it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Did us, you- <laughs> no doubt about that one. Okay, now some. Now for some humor. Okay, now Nini always likes this. She always enjoys the humor that I put through here. I'm going to the gym. Going to the gym, it gives you energy, but you need energy to go to the gym, and it sounds like a pyramid scheme to me. It sounds like a pyramid scheme to me. Let's try this one. I'm not sure how many cookies it takes to be happy, but so far it's not 27.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It should be in dozens.
0: That's correct. (laughs) I am hiding from exercise. I am in the fitness protection program.
2: Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's great.
0: A fun fact here. A majority of archaeologists are women due to the natural ability to dig up the past.
2: (laughs) Oh. 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 Oh, We don't dig up the past. It is with us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I said this to my friend, so it's me. I'm still tired from all that CrossFit this morning, the friend. It's pronounced croissant, and you ate four of them. (laughs) Okay. My wife was going through her wardrobe. She said, Look at this. It still fits me after 25 years. I said, It's a scarf. I was struggling to get my wife's attention. So I sat down on the sofa and looked comfortable. That did the trick. (laughs) (laughs) Boss. This is the boss and the employee. Boss says, do you believe in life after death? Employee. Certainly not. There's no proof of it, boss. Well, there is now, after you left early yesterday to go to your uncle's funeral, he came here looking for you.
1: (laughs) It's a the related joke is uh, how many grandmothers funerals can you have
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i worked with someone who forgot she had already attended her grandmother's funeral
0: (laughs) okay so this was actually a teachers give these tests and this is the answers that were given to the test okay So in which battle did Napoleon die? And the kid answered his last one. Where was the Declaration of Independence signed? At the bottom of the page. (laughs) The Ravi River flows in which state? Liquid state. What is the main reason for divorce? Marriage. (laughs) The kid got an F, but the teacher put A plus for creativity.
2: Yeah, I agree. These are great.
0: It is. So here we go. It blows my mind that NASA is able to receive data from 4.67 billion miles away, but I lose my Wi-Fi signal in my kitchen.
3: Hands on those buzzers, please. please
0: (laughs) Oh, let's see here. Every marriage has one person who throws things out in a garbage-loving chaos goblin who says, but I was saving that. No,
3: sorry. (laughs) Sorry.
0: Okay, let's do one last one here. Let's see here. And that one, okay, this is, we talk about a word for the day, here's a new word. It's called a snack accident. Eating an entire bag of chips by mistake.
2: <laughs> There's so much truth in all of these.
0: <laughs> that's why I love doing them. That's why I love doing them. Folks, that's all for this hour. Don't forget when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. St. Louis in Tune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network. For St. Louis in Tune, co-host Mark Langston, I'm Arnold Stricker. Remember to walk worthy and let your light shine.